Today we're going to finish up our series of messages called Family Values. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 35 if you want to turn there. We're going to read a big chunk out of that and then a little bit later on today we'll read a few verses out of chapter 36 of Exodus. We'll read some other verses in between. But before we read from Exodus 35, I want to take a moment and give you a little context for the passage we're about to read. Before we do that, would you bow your head and let's just ask God's blessing on His Word. Lord, I come before you and I want to make sure that I ask for your help because I am not sufficient. I'm not enough. I am not eloquent enough, not even close. I don't have any powers of persuasion that can change a soul. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word. Nobody needs to hear from me, but all of us, myself included, need to hear from you. So, God, speak to us today. Make your word come alive. Speak to us in our deep, innermost being and, uh, and change us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus 35. At, at, at this point that we're going to read out of Exodus 35 today, uh, uh, <clears throat> Israel, God has, has saved Israel out of slavery. But what, if you read the book of Exodus, you're going to find out that, that he didn't just save them out of slavery for nothing. But he says that he saved them and he's going to make them a distinct people so that the nations might know that he, that he is God. So, so God's not only going to pull his people out of slavery and oppression and sin and death, but then he's going to form them and shape them in such a way that the nations of the earth will look upon them and they will know that the God of Israel is truly God. You know what? Even today, God is still shaping and forming and making people for himself. And the, the presence and the power of God in our lives, it marks us distinctly among people who are far from God. And, and what God is doing in the household of faith, in a, in a covenant community of faith, like, kind of like what we are here at Restoration Life Church, he, he is distinctively marking a people that reveal to the world His goodness, His grace, His compassion, and His mercy. And we've been talking about what we believe that God has called us to uniquely be in our community. And it's these values that determine what we will do, what we won't do. They determine uh, where we're going to invest our time and our energy and our attention, our prayer, our money. And, and as we've walked through these, we, first week we talked about prayer. We value fervent and honest prayer that unleashes the supernatural power of an all-powerful God. Then we talked about truth. We value the truth of the gospel filled with the, we value speaking the truth of the gospel filled with the grace and mercy we found in Jesus and living that truth out in our lives missionally. And we talked about valuing people, that we value people more than tradition, facilities, or programs because that's what matters most to God. And the last week we talked about valuing spiritual growth. We value the spiritual growth that comes when God's people learn to build authentic relationships we, where we no longer hide behind our mask. And today, we're going to look at, an, at another distinctive mark about what it means to be the people of God. And we're going to talk about generosity. And some of you are already, already nervous about it. We're not taking another, another offering or anything today, but so you can relax. You don't have to sweat through this. But we value being generous with our time, our abilities, and our resources. We're going to talk about generosity, the way the Bible talks about generosity. And I'm even going to give you my outline before we start to read from Exodus. And I know some of you type A or type, type A type personalities, you, you need this, so I'm just going to help you out. And so you'll have the outline ready to go and you'll be able to just fill it in. But we're, we're going to talk about the motive of generosity. And, and it, it, that's one of the things that makes us distinct from worldly generosity because it's not just Christians who are generous. You know that, right? There are people who are non-Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to be generous. There are some, frankly, there are some full-on pagan fools who are really generous with their money, with their resources. But what makes us distinct, uh, a, a distinct people, is the motive for our generosity. And then, then we're going to talk about the metric of our generosity. And then ultimately, we'll talk about the method of our generosity. You like that? That's called alliteration. You don't get that much around here. I don't really do that very often, but, uh, but we got three M's for you. That was just, today that was all for you type A people that like the way things are nice, nice and tidy. So, uh, 
Uh, that's just proof that I love you. So there you go. Uh, so let's look at Exodus chapter 35. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. We're going to read through, through verse 22. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and then here comes uh, uh, right after this, he's, there's a short couple sentences, and then there's the longest run-on sentence I have ever seen in my life, even longer than Paul. It's incredible. But he says, uh, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. And here comes the sentence. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the, the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hanging of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Phew. That is a one long sentence right there. Try to say that with one breath. All right, let's re keep reading. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. We'll stop there. Now in this passage, we read about this, this epic giving campaign that breaks out uh, uh, around the mountain. And, and here's what I want to point to you. This is that what's very interesting is that this is happening at a very interesting moment of the narrative because this happens right on the heels of the rebellion of God's people against God and God responding to that rebellion with grace and with mercy and with kindness. They, they have broken their pledge to God, Israel's rebellion against God. And by the way, uh, the rebellion in our lives as well, it, it was the equivalent of entering into the marriage vows and then defiling that marriage bed on their very honeymoon. It, it, it was this blatant disregard for God's holiness, His might, how He had delivered them from slavery. And, and how does God respond to that? He responds to that with grace he responds to that with mercy. He moves toward them and not away from them. Now there's discipline involved there. There was discipline that followed the rebellion, but there's also a whole lot of kindness and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And, and then after that, there's this time, time of generous contribution. Re regarding the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place of God among the people, Moses tells his people, it's time to start building the tabernacle. Bring, and he tells the people, bring what we need to build. And he goes through this whole list of items that they need, that they're going to make. And, and what happens is they bring it, and they bring it, and they bring it, and they bring it. Every, day after day after day after day for an extended period of time, they keep bringing it. And we begin to see that one of the things that makes the people of God distinct is their generosity. So let's, let's dive into these three M's that I mentioned. The first one is the motive of generosity. As we've already established, you don't have to love Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian to be generous. In fact, you can be far from God and still be generous. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know people, and you probably do too, who, who, who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They have 
no plans whatsoever to ever submit their self to his lordship. And in fact, their lives are marked with outright rebellion against God, but they are extremely generous people. In fact, there have been some that didn't know Christ that I found more generous than some stingy Christians that I've met. What then makes us distinct as a generous people? What makes us different than the world in our generosity? Well, it's the motive of our generosity. The motive for the generosity of the people of God finds its root in the generosity of God toward his people. What motivates us? It's, it's not a guilty conscience. It's not like we're trying to earn favor with God. And if we are, we're just wasting our time there. It's not that we're trying to validate ourselves as good people by being generous. And sometimes it's all of those motives play into the generosity of many people in the world. But, but it's rather for us, it's that we have received generosity in such lavish ways that we become overwhelmed by God's generosity to us. And so then it just begins to flow out of us. We receive God's generosity. Therefore, it flows out of us as generosity. You know, I love, love, love Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, it's a verse I come back to often. But here's, here's what Romans 5, 20 says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And that's a whole different study there, that first part. But the last part says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's what I want you to understand about the grace of God. You cannot out the cross of Christ. You can't. You have, and you say, where do I get that? Well, I get that from the book of Exodus. And I get it from Romans chapter 5. You, you in your life, you have never in your life committed the type of sin that the people of Israel have just committed against God Almighty. And, and yet God's response is grace. Where sin abounds, grace also abounds. You'll, you, you'll never out the grace of God. Now don't take that as say, woohoo, let's do what we want. Because right in the very next chapter, that's when the Apostle Paul says, what should we say then? Should we sin all the more to, to be able to create more grace so that if grace abounds where sin is greater, then they, hey, let's sin it up because then we can have even more grace. And Paul says, no, don't. He says, God forbid, basically he says that would be a foolish idea. So that's not the idea behind it. It's the idea simply that my sin can never be greater than the grace of God. You know, there are a lot of people that say things like, oh, I can't, I can't uh, come to church. I can't get my life right. I've been too bad. And what they're saying to me in that moment is that somehow my sin can overpower the love and the grace of Jesus. It's just simply not true. And, and, and if you're not a Christian here and you're, you know, maybe you're nervous coming into a church thinking maybe the Lord might just light you up if he looks down and says, whoa, what's he doing here? You know, uh, if you feel that way, if you came in with that kind of trepidation, just let me help you. God's love, his mercy, and his grace abound. And if you're like, well, I'm a really, really big sin sinner. Okay, well, did you read what I just read? We, we, we read it together. God's grace then abounds all the more. And here's the point. God's volume of grace exceeds your volume of sinfulness. And that's great news, isn't it? But that great news is not just good news that makes us feel good, but it motivates us as the people of God that God just continues to lavish upon us grace, that he continues to be generous with us Outside of monetary means that he gives us what we need the most and he lavishes his grace on us. Is anybody, let me just take a little poll. Anybody sinned last week? Okay, yeah. And the ones who didn't raise your hand, you probably need to raise your hand in repentance right now because you probably did somewhere along the road. And you know, I mean, if you did it for a whole week, then congratulations, but you probably haven't, haven't done it for a whole month ever in your life. But here's my point. 
That even in that moment, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that tells me is that, is that even when I blow it, even when I stumble and fall, even when I make a stupid mistake, even when I have the worst attitude that anybody's ever had in their life, even when I hurt the people around me that I love the most, that even in that moment, God's grace is still greater than my sin and he's still giving me grace. He's constantly showering us with grace. Here's a thought. When you get, get that sort of that snippet, uh, snippet of the brokenness of the world, you know, that little picture, and maybe you get a front row seat to something awful, maybe a lot of drama, maybe a marriage that's just disintegrated, or maybe it's a sick child, or maybe it's just someone that you know that is just like a predator and just devours the people around them. You, you in that moment, you see this like little bitty space in which you inhabit. You see just a little picture of that. But I want you to think about this. The God of the Bible sees it all, everywhere, all the time. All the time. He is aware of every act of brutality, every bit of despicable, shady, dehumanizing activity on the face of the earth, and, and I don't know about you, but I oftentimes think to myself, how does he not just kill everyone? How? And it's in that moment that I become most aware of the fact that I'm completely unfit to be God. <laughs> right? Because I would run out of patience and I would not be abounding in steadfast love. I would be abounding in whipping some tail. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Anybody know what I'm talking about? But that, that's not the God of the Bible. This, he, he abounds in steadfast love and mercy and grace in spite of the wickedness of this world. And, and, and so this motivates us that he is so generous to us. Now, that's not the only motive. The other motive of our generosity is the Christian uh, who knows the Bible understands not only are we recipients, uh, recipients of the generosity of God, but on top of that, everything we own already belongs to God. We are simply stewards of what God has entrusted to us. You know, I love this, the book of Exodus and the events that took place there. The people of Israel, they've come out of slavery and they've come out with all kinds of wealth. How many of you know slaves are not typically wealthy people? Isn't that right? These, they come out of Egypt, uh, come out of slavery and they have this unimaginable wealth. Well, where did they get all that stuff? It's not that they earned it. They didn't work hard to, to, to earn it. God delivered it over to them. As they left, the Egyptians said, hey, here, here's some stuff to help you on your journey. Get out of Egypt because we're tired of the plagues. And they were handed this stuff. And it was all because of the hand of God. God delivered it over to them. Nobody was like, man, I worked really hard for this stuff. You ever wonder why it was so easy for them to bring all these offerings and so freely offer them to, the, to God for the making of the tabernacle? It's because they look at all of that gold that they had in their tent and they said, I didn't earn a bit of that. That was given to me as a result of the hand of God. It doesn't really belong to me, so why should I care if he says, bring me some gold? I take it to him. It only made sense to them they, that because they, they did not earn it. You, you, you know, the fact was, God says, you're a slave, and, and, and God just lavished upon you wealth as he, con as he conquered your enemies. What happens to us, though, as we read the book of Exodus, and we read it like, well, that's not really my story, though. I mean, if you, if you had any idea how hard I work, listen, I, I, I don't need to know how hard you work. And I hope you would work hard at work because that's why it's work. Uh, and for the glory of God, you should work hard at work. But here's what I would tell you about that. There are plenty of people in this world who work just as hard and maybe even harder than you and they don't make what you make. Right? That's the grace of God on you. You owe nothing. You owe nothing. You, you earn nothing that was not entrusted to you by God and you say, I earned it all. I worked hard for it. Who gave you the ability to work? It's the grace 
of God. So it's all his stuff. Everything you own in his is his. Everything I have is his. Uh, all of us, everything we have is his. And this motivates us. And we, we, we understand that. Therefore, we don't hoard anything because we understand that he has given it to us to steward it. That it belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, when he says, bring me an offering, bring me a tithe, we don't hesitate. We just do it because we understand it's not ours. The, the motive behind our generosity is not that we feel bad, you know, because we make money and there are other people in the world that are poor. It's not that we want to prove to ourselves or to anybody else that we're good people. That's not what motivates us, or at least it shouldn't be. If, and if that's what's motivating you to be generous, I'm telling you, you need to repent before God because that is not what makes us distinct. The world is motivated by those kind of things. But you know what we're motivated by? We're motivated by God's generosity towards us and the reality that God has trusted us with all of this stuff. All these things in our lives. And to be honest with you, the first time I really profoundly uh, understood this in, 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 a, in a deep and profound way, it wasn't really about money. It, it, was, it, was, it was with children. Like the first time I held my daughters in my hand, especially with my oldest daughter, Aaron, when, when, uh, when, when I held her the first time, I, I mean, I was just overwhelmed. Here's this tiny little baby. I, well, she was a pretty good-sized baby, you know, so, but, but she was still a little baby, and, and, uh, and I was holding her there, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. He's going to trust me with this? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That moment where it just hits you and you realize, whoo, this is a massive responsibility here. And here's the problem. I have a very long track record of stumbling and failing. And he's going to put a little soul in my house to nurture and to care for. He is abundantly gracious to us. And then he entrusts us with all of his stuff. And let me tell you, you're not taking anything with you. I have never seen a U-Haul trailer hooked up to a hearse. With all the years I've been in ministry, I haven't seen that. You're not taking anything with you. There's, there's this old idea that people say, well, I just want to leave a legacy for my children. I want to leave something for my family. But the problem with that is the book of Ecclesiastes says that one of your children's children's children is going to be a complete moron and, he, and they're going to blow everything that you worked for. So congratulations, because it's just going to go away eventually. It's just the reality of it. This is the motive of generosity. I am a recipient of God's generosity. And all that I have is God's. And I want to steward it well because it's not mine. And I will be held accountable for how I steward God's resources. That's what motiva is, is motivating me. That's what's motivating my generosity. So now let's talk about the metrics of generosity. And if, if you're church folk, you, you'll appreciate this. If you're a guest with us or you're watching online and you don't have much background in the church, you might be like, okay, what? You're not sure what's going on. But, but I mentioned this earlier. The, the conversation that starts happening around generosity is this. Okay, now, pastor, are you talking about the tithe or are you talking about the offering? Are you talking about the 10% or is that 10% of the gross or is that 10% of the net? Is that before tax? Is that after tax? Are you saying that I have to give 10% to the church and then anything else is an offering and above and beyond that? And we start playing all these games trying to figure out how little we can give to God and how much we can get away with, which is just a bizarre thing. It's sort of like, sort of like I heard a story about this, this wealthy man who was, uh, who was uh, going to hire a new chauffeur. And so he had three candidates and he took them up on this windy uh, mountain road and there's an edge of the road there. There's no guardrail. It was very steep uh, cliff on the side of that. And he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're, you're, you're gonna, there's going to be a driving test. I want to see who can drive closest to the edge without falling over. Well, the first guy, he get up, gets up there and I mean... 
He, he's right on the edge of the road, as close as, as he could be, almost ready to fall off, and he, and he um, survives. The next guy, he's even closer. He, his, his rear tire is halfway off, and it's spinning and throwing gravel over the cliff as he finally makes it out of there, just barely surviving. And then the third guy, he comes along, and he hugs the inside of the road as far as away from the cliff as he could, and the rich guy hired the third guy. Listen, a lot of us... And this is not, I had no plans on saying any of this stuff. A lot of us, when it comes to our generosity, when it comes to serving the Lord, you know, we're like, we're like, let's see how close to the edge I can get without falling off. And the whole idea is, no, 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 God is so good. He is so generous. He is so merciful. He is so kind. He's so full of grace that the only response for us is to get us close and to hug us close and to stay away from the edge. And if he says, give me 10%, then I'm going to find a way to give 15%. Does that make sense? That we want to press into Him. Now, that's free of charge. No extra offering today. But, but anyway, we, we start to play all these games and we muddy up the waters. But, but, but here's the problem with it. When we start talking about, well, is it 10%? Is it 10% of the growth? Is the Old Testament tithe still valid? Is it on the net? What is it? We, we, we muddy up those waters. But here's the reality. None of that is God's metric. That is not how God measures generosity. Even if you believe 100% in your heart in the tithe, God is not measuring your generosity by whether you give your tithe. That's not how he measures it. In fact, here's how God measures generosity. 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now the word cheerful there in the Greek is, is the root from which we get our word hilarious, which is, an, is, is absolutely a hilarious word, right? But God loves a hilarious giver. God loves a giver that's full of joy, that's full of cheer in that act of giving. So do you want to know God's metric on generosity? Now listen, if you want to dive in and study the difference between tithes and offerings and, and whether the Old Testament tithe holds over in the New Testament, which I believe it does because it predated the law, but, but, and, and all that's a worthwhile study, and I say dig in, but that's not really the, 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 the metric God uses. What I'm telling you is that God looks at your heart to measure your generosity. He looks at your heart to measure your generosity. That's what he's after. Over and over and over again, what God is after is your heart. That's, we see it in, in a G, with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that, that he says, you've heard it said this. And he doesn't say that that was wrong. You know, like he said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And he says, but he says, but I tell you, it's, it's more than just the act. He said, if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So Jesus is saying, it's not a matter of just the act that you carry out or don't carry out. It's about what's going on inside of you. It's your heart that God is after. Which tells me, by the way, that the standard for grace is actually higher than the standard of the law. Read, the, read Matthew chapter 5 and try to tell me that that's not part of what he's saying there. God measures are giving by our heart. You know, and oftentimes people who, they, they aren't really church people, they say, oh, all the church ever wants is my money. It's all they want. No, no, no. I want to hear to tell you, God wants much more than your money. He wants your life. He wants your vision. He wants your future. He wants your dreams. He wants your gifts. He wants your talents. And he wants your cash. He wants it all. Because he wants your heart. Because you see, all of those things, all of that has a way of distorting and disfiguring us if he doesn't have our heart. Money is particularly powerful in our lives. If he doesn't have our heart, that money will distort the way I see the world around me. So don't give reluctantly. In other words, he says, you don't want to give? God doesn't want you to give. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion, he says. You should never give because somebody did a drive-by guilting on you. 
You, you should never give under compulsion. How should you give? Hilariously, cheerfully. And here's the question. Where do we find that kind of cheer? Where can we find that kind of joy when we give? Well, we find cheer in our giving, and it goes back to the point number one, when we fully understand the generosity of God toward us, and we understand that we've been given much to steward, that God has entrusted <laughs> to us those things. You know what I mean? I, I, I keep thinking if you step back and look at this, you know, at the way he has set things up in God's plan. You know, if you're like me, you might look at it and say, this is the plan of God to trust us with all of this, not just our goods, but also to trust us with the gospel, that this is the plan of God. I mean, listen, honestly, if it weren't for the power of the Holy Spirit, that would be the dumbest plan ever, right? It really would because, you know, it'd be, let me take the, this really selfish, self-absorbed people and entrust my message and trust my name and trust my gospel and trust my resources and uh, all that to rescue the world from sin and death. And I know us. Uh, that's a bad plan unless the Holy Spirit of God intervenes. And, but praise God, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, now, this reluctantly and under compulsion thing, here's something that's interesting to know. And again, we're... We're not taking an offering, so just nobody panic. But did you know that Jesus teaches on money more than he teaches on almost anything else? More than he teaches on heaven, more than he teaches on hell. You, you get a hint of why he's doing it in Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, what does it say? There your heart will be also. Listen, you know what he's telling, he's telling me there? He's saying, your heart follows your treasure, not the other way around. I don't give to something because I love it. I love it because I gave to it. It matters to me because I'm invested in it. I'll give you a simple illustration of that. Uh, back when I was like 26, I, uh, I opened up this mutual fund to with a, a retirement plan, you know, thinking, planning ahead. I, didn't, I don't have it anymore. That tells you how, how well it went. But, but anyway, I did it anyway. And the, the whole idea was to plan ahead. Um, and, and, and so I had this. It was invested in one specific mutual fund. Now, before that day, before I signed that paper, I had never, ever in my life ever picked up a newspaper and flipped open to the financial page. Ever. Not once. Never looked at it, didn't care about it, didn't want to see it. But you know what happened after I started investing? I started, every time I got a paper, I'd start flipping it open and I'd find the symbol for my, my mutual fund to see how it was doing. I didn't love them, the, the, I wasn't interested in that because, uh, you know, that, and that was why I was investing money. It's because I had invested money and then I cared about it. You know, there's a lot of people I know, a lot of Christians I know, they don't care about missions. You know why? They don't give to missions. There's no investment in there. And so therefore, they don't really care about it. This, I'm just trying to be real here. God is after our heart. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So if sometimes you're like, man, I just don't know, quite know where I'm landing. My, does my heart really fully belong to the Lord? You know where the, where the Bible tells you to check on that? It's not, you know, to take some spiritual gifts test to see where you are. If you want to know if your, heart is fully, if your heart fully belongs to God, look at your checkbook. Look at where you're investing your time and your resources. Look at where, you, where you're stewarding what God has given you. What are you putting that into? That's going to tell you what really matters to you. Which, which is scary to me because that says a lot about Wendy's and me. But I mean, that's a different story. But look at where your money flows. Look at where you spend your time and your money. Does my heart really belong to the Lord? Well, let me just take this gifts test and see what my gifts are. No, 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 no. Look at where your heart is. Look at where you're spending your money. Look at where you fantasize. Look at where your mind goes. Look at what you think about. Look at those things. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And God who, who wants to move forward, move you forward in compassion and mercy is saying, be marked by my generosity. Understand that I have given you much. 
Understand that I have lavished upon you grace upon grace upon grace. And every time you stumble, I have, I have been there to meet you with even more grace. And every time you have blown it, I've extended out of my riches, out of my kindness, I've extended mercy to you. And he says to us then, now I want you to be like me. This is the metric of generosity, not, well, I'll give 5% or I'll give 8% or I'll give 12% or I'll give 20%. Now, listen, I think it's great to be strategic in giving. I think uh, looking at your, at your giving and saying, I'm going to use the 10% threshold as the floor of my giving. I think that's a great idea. But, but really, God is after your heart. If you give 10% to God begrudgingly, you haven't really given anything because he's wanting your heart. Do you have a generous heart? Are you a cheerful, a hilarious giver? All right, last I want to talk about the methods of generosity. And I'm going to give you four categories here. They're not categories that I came up with as full disclosure. They're categories that a pastor in New York named John Tyson came up with. And so I'm just going to steal them from him because all truth is God's truth. We'll just go with that. So, so here would be the first method. How are we to be generous? In Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul writes this to the churches in Galatia. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have a clear mark in Scripture that one of the buckets, if we want to think of it that way, into which we're to be generous is, is local church giving, church generosity. We're to be good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. We are to be generous to the church in which we worship. Now, now here's, here's what I love. I want to affirm you. Um, I, I, I want to tell you, the people of Restoration Life Church, you might be the most generous group of people that I've ever been around. I believe that with my whole heart. And, you know, and, and this is not a, ooh, we're low on cash, I better preach. This is not that kind of a sermon at all. Uh, God should never have to beg for what's already His. That's not what this is. But, but through your giving, we, we give to the church that disciples us, that, that visits us in the hospitals, that cares for us. This is the problem I have with when, uh, when there are television ministries that want you to tithe to them. Because, listen, you go to the hospital, they're not going to be there. It's the people in that local church that are going to be there. And I'm not even talking about just the preacher. I'm talking about the church. We give to the church that cares for us, that edifies us in the Lord when we gather, the church that works for our good. And we want to be generous on that front. You know, for, 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 for the several years that I've been here, you, you've, you have given so generously and we've been able to support gospel works all over the world. Your dollars have gone to the ends of the earth. Uh, and I'd love to, for it to be in larger amounts, but we have supported missionaries all over the place. We have through, through uh, the Live Dead Ministries, we have helped in, in planting churches in very difficult places. In fact, places that I can't even talk to you about specifically unless we're not live streaming, streaming because it puts people's welfare and their life in jeopardy if, if it gets, gets out on the internet. You have done this. Your generosity has done this. And, I, and, and I'm not saying that so you can back off and say, well, look at what we've done and back off of our generosity, but so that you might give all the more to the purposes of God in this place. I'm here to tell you we're not hoarding money here. We're not. Nobody's getting rich here. We, 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 and so we give in the local context. We give to the local church. And, I, and I didn't, listen, I know that is not very sexy. You know, the, the whole, you know, the flashy evangelist on TV or, or all these other things. It's all, you know, it, it, but, but here it's like, oh man, we're, we're paying for lights and air conditioning and heating. And it's so boring. But yeah, yeah, it's because you're grownups. And grownups get to pay for things like that, Right. How many of you know, remember when you had lived in fantasy land before you started living your own, on your own and you thought, man, I can't wait to live on my own. Then you start living on your own and you realize, you mean I got to pay for water? <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. So this is one of the categories. Let me give you another one. I love this one. It's called spontaneous giving. Spontaneous giving. Acts 4.34. There was not a needy person among them. What a statement is that? 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I, I love this idea that you had some wealthy landowners and, and they just hear of a need from somebody in the church and they're like, oh, oh my goodness, I'll sell that, sell the house, sell that property out in the country, sell it here, somebody has a need, use this to help them. It was spontaneous. You know, before I became pastor, I've seen this sort of thing happen all over the place. Before I became pastor here at Restoration Life Church, there was a period of time where, where we struggled financially. You know, over a period of years, we had gone into debt, into debt for a number of reasons. Like, for example, one time our car was stolen when we were living in Idaho, and it was pushed over the Snake River Canyon rim. It bounced eight times. I, I could see where it hit, all this stuff. And, and so we were forced to get a new car and we were forced to finance a car. We really couldn't afford that. And sometimes it was other bills that we couldn't have, didn't have, didn't have cash for. And so we had to put it on a credit card. And there were a number of issues that led us to a place where we, where we just had a lot, all kinds of various kinds of debt. And there was a man in our church that, that, uh, that heard about this and he, he saw this and he wanted to bless us. And that man paid off our debt. That's crazy. He just, we didn't expect it. He just saw a need and he wanted to bless us. Not only that, when that car that I mentioned was stolen, um, we still owed on it. And I didn't have any insurance on it. And, and, and so the, we were poor youth pastors, and, which I don't even have to say that. If you're a youth pastor, you're poor. That just goes together. It's sort of redundant to call somebody a poor youth pastor. Uh, but that's just the way it was. And and we just didn't have any money to pay it off, but, uh, but because the, there were, the car was totaled now, so there's no collateral, now the bank wants the money because there's no collateral for their money, right? And so we didn't have that kind of cash. We were new to the district. We'd only been there a few months. Nobody in the district knew us. We were in the Southern Idaho district. They didn't know us, uh, but, but churches in our district who didn't know us, who had never met us, heard about what had happened down in Twin Falls, Idaho, and they started sending offerings down to our church to help us pay off that car. They saw a need and they met it. We were the, we were the recipients of that time. I've seen other people of God who, who saw that there was, uh, in another church, they saw that there was someone in the church who's, whose car just died. You know what I'm talking about? They just, the car gave up the ghost. They, you could not repair it. it was, you couldn't do anything about it. And, and so uh, this family in the church saw that need and they gave their car to them. They were, they were getting another vehicle, and instead of they said, listen, instead of getting the trade-in value, we're going to give this to them. And they were not wealthy people by any stretch. I mean, they were people who worked hard, and they, you know, they didn't take many vacations. They didn't waste their money, but they saw need, and they met it. And there, there have been times in, in our church family, not just other places, but even here with this church family that, that people have heard about a serious need in another church member's life and they just gave sacrificially to meet that need. This is seeing a need and meeting it, the spontaneous moment of saying, God's been generous to me. Let me bless them. Let me help them because there's going to come a day when I'm probably going to need some help. Anybody get in? Can I get an amen on that? It's just people who are serious about being generous out of an overflow of the generosity that they've received from the Lord. Then there, and I think this is my favorite, there's secret giving. Secret giving. Matthew 6. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that doesn't mean that you pull out your wallet and look away and say, okay, my right hand doesn't know what I'm... No, it's just saying, listen, don't make a big deal about your giving. You don't have... Nobody has to know this is about giving in secret. And I love this because here's what happens when this kind of giving takes place. And maybe you've re received a, that kind of a gift where you didn't know where it was came from. I know I have. But when you give in secret, the only one who's getting praise is God. That's what I love about it. I don't know if it's ever happened to you where you get an anonymous gift. You're just kind of all jammed up in the moment and you're, you're like, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what I can do. I've done everything I know to do and, and I don't know what we're going to do here. And then all of a sudden you go out in your mailbox and something just shows up out of the blue. Happened to me multiple times back in 2020 
during the pandemic year. I mean, I, I, there were those moments. There's something just shows up. Somebody blesses you, and you have no idea who, who it is. And what are you forced to do in that moment? You're like, well, just thank you, God. Thank you, God. You, you have to thank somebody, but there's no one to thank but the Lord who provided for you through secret generosity. It's, it's, I think that's why it's my favorite thing, because, because God's the only one that gets the glory for it. Then I want to talk a little bit about this, the fourth category, for, as we're talking about methods of generosity, and that is sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What a powerful statement of this. We, most of us don't even have categories for what we just read. In a time of extreme poverty, poverty they were overwhelmed with joy. Severe poverty, overwhelmed with joy, and, and filled with generosity. This is the reason, listen, this is why I encourage you to go on short-term missions trips. I want you to, to go with, we're trying to work together with the church over in West Memphis to try to get a trip together whenever they get something rolling. But, uh, but, but, but I want you to go somewhere where they don't have all of the things that we're pursuing and, and check out their joy. Not, you know, and, and then as you do that, grow in an understanding that Jesus is not just enough, but he is in abundance. It's like when I, I've been to Haiti a couple of times, and Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And I remember going there, and the first time I went there, I met a young man, and for the life of me, I cannot remember his name, but he had, he, he had, had a leg amputated from the knee down on one leg, and he had walked around on one homemade crutch, and he lived about five miles or so from the church. And, and every day, he walked down to the church Every single day, walked down there to serve, to find a way and to, to worship together when they had chapel services for all the orphans they had. Every single day he walked there. And I, I remember he wanted us to come see where he lived. He was so excited. And we went over there to his, his house. And I use that very, very loosely. It was a little shed smaller than most of the sheds that are in your backyard. And it was a dirt floor, cinder block walls, a tin roof, and he had one cot in there with springs and no mattress. And that's all he had besides the clothes on his back and his homemade crutch. And he was so full of joy. So full of joy. Let me keep reading because it gets even more beautiful if that's possible. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So they, they heard about this offering for the Jerusalem saints who were suffering because of a famine down there. And, they, and Paul looked at them. He didn't even ask them because he's like, man, they're so poor and they're already suffering so much. I'm not even going to ask them to give. And they hear about it and they're begging Paul, please let us be part of this. Please, we want to give. And he said, they gave according to their means. And he said, even beyond their means. You know, I'm going to hear tell you, I have never met a pastor who told me, man, my people are just begging to give more to the church. What do I do? But that's what's happening. They're begging to be part of what was going on. How can we give? What can we do? I know we have next to nothing, but what can we do to be part of what God is up to in our day? Sacrificial giving. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should com complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is the act of grace he's talking about? Sacrificial giving. Let's never be satisfied as a community of faith to read about our church and 
you know, whether it's in a news article or in a review online or whatever it be, never, never be satisfied to read about a church and go, oh, we excel in faith and we excel in speech and we excel in knowledge and we excel in earnestness and we excel in love and then not have that rounded up with sacrificial generosity. In fact, I don't think you can love without being generous. I think it's impossible. Excel in this also, sacrificial generosity. Now, I want to stop for a moment before we wind down to a close here, because I know some of you are not hearing this as exciting news, but you're hearing this as crushing news because there have been some decisions made, some things leveraged. You're in debt. You're drowning in debt right now, and it feels as though there, there's no possibility for generosity in your life at all. And, and I, I don't want to ever in any way lay burdens on you that the Lord has not laid on you already. What I want you to be aware of is that we're here to, to try to serve you and to try to help you. So if you're drowning in debt and your pride has you stuck unwilling to admit that, that, that you're in trouble and, and you're unwilling to confess that, then why don't you let us help you if we can? And I'm not saying we're going to pay off your debt. Don't misunderstand me. We don't have those kind of funds. That's not what I'm saying. But I know the world in which we live. Most of us didn't have parents who taught us to, uh, about budgeting or taught us how to handle money. And most of us just sort of figured it out on our own after we moved out. But some of us, and God help us, we just never figured it out. We want to serve you. We want to help you. It, 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 we want to help you learn how to set up a budget. We want to help you set up a plan to get out of debt. We want to do what we can to help you. And it's not so that you can give to the church, but so that you can be freed up eventually to walk in the joy of generosity. It's one of my dreams to get that place where if I see a need, I can just say, I don't even need to look in my checkbook. I, want, I know that the money is there because I'm ready to give it. It's, it's better to give than to receive. It just is. It just is. And you, you know this at Christmas. You, you, you know how it feels and you love how it feels when someone is opening up the gift that you, that you gave to them, that you spent your money on, that you, you bought for them and wrapped for them. And you're like, oh, oh are they going to love it? Are they going to be so excited? There's just something there. There's the joy in giving that's so much greater than receiving. At least once you're mature, you know, Little kids, it's different. They want to receive more, but, but as you, if you're a mature person, you're more excited about giving than receiving. So just don't let these categories make you feel paralyzed. Don't, don't downshift into shame. We, we've, we've already covered earlier in the sermon that there's no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no mistake that you've made that disqualifies you or discounts you for gospel ministry. So let's, let us just come alongside of you and, and let us help you if we can. But you gotta, you got to be honest with this. Re remember what God is doing here. We're going to close with this. God, God is making us distinct. And I, I want to start to put this on the ground. I, I don't want this to be some sort of ethereal thing. I, I want to talk about generosity unleashed from a community of faith. What if you walked in this type of generosity in your neighborhood in your workplace, at, at the restaurants in which you visit, the, to the baristas that you inter interact with, to, to the crew at Walmart, which is maybe harder to do sometimes. But, but, but what would happen if we were just marked by generosity like this, the way the Bible talks about? Because, because here we, we need to know evangelism and generosity are very tightly interwoven. That's why we try to do the things we do to serve this community. Because we want them to see Christ. And maybe you're like, I don't know what to do. Just be generous. Just start. Just be generous in any way you can. One of our favorite things is I started doing with my oldest daughter, Erin, and sometimes we'll go out to eat and, and just something just hits us about the waitress or whatever and we'll say, okay, you pay half, I'll pay half, and we'll give them a, a big tip. A really big tip. At least really big for us. I mean, I'm sure for some people they're like, you call that really big? Well, yes, it was for us. To walk in that kind of generosity. And not to just do it so that they say, what nice people. But to be able to express the love of Christ to people. Just be generous. How, how, do, how do you be generous? You're, you're paying attention 
to the souls around you. you you've, you've been at work and you, you, you've seen that somebody is struggling. You, you've been at work and you've seen that somebody is, has, has hit a rough spot in their life. Well, generous people start to engage with those people. Are you okay? Is everything all right? I, I'm not trying to be no, nosy here, but can we go grab a cup of coffee? Can, let me buy you lunch. Let's just sit down and, and have lunch. How can I pray for you? Is there any way I can serve you? This makes us distinct. We genuinely care. Not to just get, you know, scalps on the wall and say, well, I got another Christian, you know. But because we've received God's grace. So we give it. The Spirit of God came to us. He said, I know you're not all right. So let me help you. And then we extend that to others. What would it be like in all of our connect groups if this was a reality, that we were generous people? We'd be like, oh man, let, let, let's meet this need. Guys, how can we do this? What can we do? How can we help? And what if we were so generous that there were no needs? We read that in Corinthians, but I told you at the beginning we were going to read a little bit from Exodus 36. So I want to read that. We're almost done here. Verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary, on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing in free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses commanded, and, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Everybody, quit giving. You've given, you're given too much. The workers had to leave what they were doing because they were wasting their time receiving offerings. This is what's saying. So the people were, were restrained from giving for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Remember the, the list that the, that list where, where they were like, okay, we, we need to build the tabernacle. You know, we need the screen, we need the base, we need the bronze work, we need the rings, we need the linens. All that whole long, super long list. And all the workers came and they're like, Moses, man, too much. Tell the people to stop. Just stop. And and I'm just tell, I just I you know I dream as a pastor just to be able to come in here one day and say, all right, everybody. Just, just stop for a bit. Just, we don't know what to do with all the funds that you've given. We've tried to give it all away, but you're giving it faster than we can do anything with it. So everybody just take a break. The whole world is almost saved now, and we've just about eradicated poverty, so quit it. This, this is incredible what happened. I want to tell you a story, then read your quote, and we'll be done. Caesar Hadrian. Became Caesar of Rome in around 117 A.D. He, he was not a Christian, but he was a religious man. In fact, he, he built the Temple of Venus. Well, he was so concerned. He was so weirded out by this small but very rapidly, rapidly growing group called The Way. We call it Christianity. He was so weirded out that he sent a man to get to the bottom of what made us as the people of God distinct. So you have a Caesar of Rome... Who, who built a temple to Venus, who starts to get anxious about Christianity's growing global influence. And so he sends a spy in to check on it, check us out, all right? And that, that spy's name was Aristides. Well, in a letter back to Caesar, here's basically what he wrote. I'm going to read it to you. They love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any among them that are poor and needy, if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy with their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. Listen, that's not a fairy tale. That happened. That's historical. 
the people of God, marked by generosity, motivated by the grace and mercy of God, with the metric being the, a heart that is cheerful in the Lord and cheerful in their giving, with the method of empowering churches to do the work of raising up individuals for ministry while sacrificially giving and secretly giving, all the while with a cheerful disposition, rejoicing in the moving of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'll just end with this. How far have we fallen? Does American evangelicalism look anything like that? And, and listen, more than I'm bagging on the current state of the church, what I'm doing is I'm laying before you a, a hope that I have for us. What might happen all over Marion, West Memphis, and Memphis if we live generous lives like that? How many lives might be changed? How might Christ's name be glorified? How many people might look at us and say, as, as that man did, there is something divine going on in that place. God is in that place. Every need we saw, we stepped into. It, 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 what would happen if in the church there were no needs anymore because every time we were aware of a need, it would, we would be so excited and happy to meet it that it was just taken care of. What if you felt comfortable letting your needs be known because you had experienced the grace of God in your life and you knew that there are no perfect people? Because here's the thing, sometimes generosity is stifled by the pride of the needy. I can't let everybody know that, that I'm struggling here. I can't let anybody know that this is a legitimate need. No, you can and, and you should. The generosity of God's people towards you is a tangible expression of God's kindness to you. So my dream is our community of faith, our church, having an impact literally to the ends of the earth. You say, Pastor, don't you see how small we are? I don't care. Jesus started with 12. Seemed like they had a little bit of an impact worldwide. But this is one of the things that must mark us, to be a people of generosity. I mean, why can't it happen again? All it takes is the power of the Holy Spirit to reorient, reorient our hearts and to reorient, reorient our lives, to get us to live a different way, to change our priorities, to change our attitudes, to make us like Christ. Let's pray. Father, first of all, Lord, thank you for your generosity to us. We, we praise you for that generosity and for your kindness that you would entrust us with all that we have. And, and, and when, I, when I think about, God, the money that's in my accounts, when I think about my home, when I think about the, the places in which you place my life and the friends and the relationships that I have and the family, Lord, I realize you have been stunningly generous to me. So, God, forgive me for those times when I have hoarded my, the things that I had or I've thought something other than, hey, that all belongs to God. And Lord, I, I praise you for how well this church models this, but, but I ask all the more that you would just stir up in our hearts a supernatural, divine generosity, that our kindness, uh, not just to the household of faith here at Restoration Life Church, but our kindness all over this town, to every barista, to every waiter or waitress, to every person we come across, that that might make us distinct that, that those that we work with, those that our kids play sports with, that those whose houses are next to ours would, would almost be confused by our generosity and kindness, as, 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 so much so that they're drawn up into the story of your redemption. And Lord, that as that man who wrote to Caesar, they would say, surely there is something of the divine among them. So God, help us. Some of us are drowning in debt, so help us, God. Give them hope. Help them to see, God, that it won't always be that way, but it is going to take some changes. We want to repent of, of that where, where it's been foolish decisions on our part, but, but God, would you just put us back on solid ground? For others, Father, who have just a, a vision of life that's nothing more than this world, forgive us. Expose to us. Help us to see where, where our hearts are and where our real treasures are. 
And I thank you, God, that we have a greater hope than just life on this planet. We praise you that you are our greater treasure. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I don't know how many of you would say, and I don't even know how, what to ask, but maybe you would just say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. If you're like me, preparing this message, there were very many convicting moments in my life where I realized that I was not living in generosity. And maybe today God is saying to you, hey, there's something more. I want you to discover this. I want you to find the joy in this lifestyle of generosity. And you'd say, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me because I want to be marked by the, by the distinctiveness of the generosity of the people of God. I want that to be what my, one of the earmarks of my life that people will see. If that's you and you'd like me to pray for you, just slip your hand up right where you are. Yeah, boy, they're all over the place. Father, you see every hand. And Lord, you know where we are and you know what needs to change. So God, I pray first of all that you would convict us of those areas where we need to change. That you, Lord, help us to learn to prioritize, that we, that we would budget wisely, that we'd put you first in everything. That, God, that you would help, help us to become the generous people you designed us to be. Lord, this is not about being generous so that we can get stuff. It's about being generous because we have already received so much. So help us to walk and live in that. And in so doing, God, let the name of Jesus be glorified in our lives. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.